This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. All right. Um, well, let's get started. Uh, welcome, everyone, to our very first uh, Ask for Wonder, exploring the thought and writings of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel class. Um, hopefully, you all received my email from yesterday, unless you were a, a late addition in the last 24 hours to joining the class. Um, I sent you yesterday an email um, with the reading that we're going to look at today, but I'm going to share my screen when we're actually in the text. So uh, no need to have that up on your computer if you don't already. Um, so I want to start. I want to start with a Heschel story. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. Um, it when people think of Heschel, uh, one of the first things they think of is his writing style, particularly his poeticism. And then somewhere along the way, they learned that English was like the fifth language that they learned, that he learned. And, you know, all of us who think we have some skills in writing are brought back with humility to an appreciation for just how brilliant the mind and writing style of Abraham Joshua Heschel is. Um, so really his writing style is remarkably poetic and highly quotable. And that's a wonderful thing for Heschel, uh, but it's also a challenge for Heschel because for understanding Heschel, because he's so delightfully quotable, uh, we sometimes pluck the two or three sentences that fit perfectly on our, you know, on a poster or on a, on a source sheet or whatever it might be. And we say, there we have it. That's what Heschel has to say about X or Y. And what it means is that rarely do we do a, a deep dive into the long form writing of Heschel. Um, but there's something lost there because Heschel is a theologian and a philosopher and a poet, and he has um, sustained arguments that he's trying to, to share. And, um, and, and we don't grasp the entirety of his argument if we just look at two or three sentences. So one of the motivations for teaching this class is to really spend time, not just in the quotes of Heschel, but in the extended writing of Heschel. Now, um, the story goes that Heschel wrote almost exclusively on three by five index cards which makes sense if you think about how quotable he is. Any paragraph first existed as a three by five index card. And so it to some degree stands alone because that's really how he wrote it. Um, but the challenge of writing that way is that the coherence between one index card and the next, or if it appears in a book between one paragraph and the next, isn't always there. Sometimes it feels like he's jumping from one idea to the next. Um, so there's one particular essay that just really isn't clear. And the story goes that scholars are looking at this essay and they're stumped by how he's building his argument, how he gets from one idea to the next. Uh, enter Heschel's typist, who admits that unfortunately on her way to the typewriter, what happened? She dropped the stack of index cards, all right? And while she did her best to put them back into the correct order, maybe she admitted, you know, some of them didn't land where they were supposed to, they didn't land in the right spot. All right, so I tell you that story because you might experience that in, in the reading of Heschel that we're gonna do together. Like a particular paragraph is, is brilliant and we're not sure how he gets from one paragraph to the next paragraph. Um, I don't think the typist, you know, dropped all of his index cards, but it, it's a little bit of a window into how his mind works and how he engaged in these writing projects. Now, 
many um, brilliant scholars along the way over the last you know, 50, 60 years, 70 years, um, have done their best to help people like me and you um, understand the depth of what Heschel has to say. The, the first attempt to do that was done by Fritz Rothschild in a book called Between God and Man, um, which is brilliantly titled, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So this book is first published in 1959. So by 1959, um, Heschel's major works include The Earth is the Lord's, which is actually a little bit a diff different style of Heschel writing. It's about the inner world of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, published in 1949. Um, in 51, he writes, Man is Not Alone. Later in 51, he writes The Sabbath, which I think many people um, you know, would recognize some quotes from, and it's one of his better known short treatises. Uh, three years later, Man's Search, Man's Quest for God, and then one year later, God in Search of Man. Hey, God in Search of Man, Man's Quest for God, Man is Not Alone. I think that's why Rothschild titles this Between God and Man. You know, he didn't want to pick which direction to prioritize. So he just set it up as a two-way street, which, I, of course, I think is what Heschel, one of Heschel's great claims, right? That we are both striving to be in relationship with God and God is striving to be in relationship with us. A very Hasidic thought, which over the course of our time together, that's part of what we'll do is we'll look at how Heschel's writing, Heschel's thought is inspired from his own personal history and roots in Hasidic world in, in uh, you know, pre-war pre Europe. So Rothschild, what he does in this book, which grows out of his dissertation, don't we all wish we have a had a book that grew out of our dissertation? I say that I don't even have a PhD, but I still say that. Okay, so this book, which grows out of his dissertation, is an attempt to systematize, to sort of organize Heschel's thought by category or by theme. Okay? And it's a very helpful book because I mean, a little bit like the Talmud, right? You open up the Talmud and you want to see what the Talmud has to say about. I don't know, Shabbat. So you think, aha, Masechet Shabbat, the tractate of Shabbat. That's where I'm going to find everything that the rabbis have to say about Shabbat. No, that's not, that's not going to be your experience. You will find some things on Shabbat there. You'll find plenty of things not about Shabbat there. And if you look through the rest of the tractates of the Talmud, you'll also find things about Shabbat. And so Heschel's writing, in a sense, is a little bit like the Talmud insofar as um, he doesn't organize all of his writings on radical amazement in one place or all of his writings on prayer in one place. So Rothschild does the, you know, the careful scholarship of combing at this point, the five books that Heschel has written and other essays and organizing them by theme. Um, my, my dad, Rabbi Michael Panitz, um, told me the following story from one of his dissertation advisors, R Fritz Rothschild, okay? That when Fritz Rothschild was presenting his dissertation to his dissertation committee, um, when he was all done, one of, the, one of the academics on the committee said to Rothschild, you did what even God himself couldn't do. You turned Heschel into a systematic thinker. Okay, so thanks to Rothschild, I mean, I think our studying together in this class will be, my hope, a little bit more organized than just working our way through one of his great books. I think I will primarily use this book because it is organized by theme, and as I'll explain in a moment, I think I think that that's the right way for us to try to approach Heschel, at least in this in this medium here, okay, in this forum. So let's talk about his writing style for just another moment, and then we're gonna actually open up the text and start learning together, right? I, I mentioned at the beginning that 
Um, I think Heschel is well known and well appreciated for his poetic style. And I think that his choice of this style is intentional. I think that he felt that the poetic mode was the best to elicit wonder. Not just wonder, but I'm using that intentionally. The best to elicit, elicit wonder. You can't argue someone into wonder. So he set out to evoke it. And his writing style is one of his tools meant to evoke wonder. So this class, I hope, will be a text-based class. Right? We're going to focus our learning on primary text. And like if we were learning with Rabbi Kasher, you know, the, the, the Parsha of the week, and we had all the different commentators, um, I want us to be very careful readers of text. I want us to delight in the language and poetry of his writing, trying to understand both what he's teaching and feel what he's teaching, right? So it's gonna be a slow reading and a careful reading. And uh, to inspire us into that kind of reading, I wanna share one of my favorite quotes. This is by a, a Czechoslovakian author. Has anyone here read the book, Too Loud a Solitude? Brohumil Hrabal? really lovely short book. So in the opening pages of that book, he writes, because when I read, I don't really read. I pop a beautiful sentence into my mouth and suck it like a fruit drop, mm. or I sip it like a liqueur until the thought dissolves in me like alcohol, bringing brain and heart and coursing on through the veins to the root of each blood vessel. All right, that's how we're going to try to read, okay, sentence by sentence, uh, and then I'll retain the prerogative to skip whole paragraphs when Heschel gets carried away. Forgive me for saying that. Okay, so um, one more note, um, you know, beware the rabbinic preamble. It's like when we get up there on Shabbat morning and we say just a few announcements and then it's as long as the sermon. That's what's happening right now, but this is the first class, so you get... You have to indulge me in a long preamble. Um, Heschel builds a vocabulary of terms that he constructs a theology out of, right? Now, many of these terms are unique to him. I'll just name two, right? Shabbat as a palace in time. That's that is unique to Heschel. Right? Or the term radical amazement, unique to Heschel. But some of the vocabulary of terms that are the building blocks of his theology are the building blocks of other theologies, but he's using them in specific ways, right? Transcendence and imminence. What he means by God, who is God to Heschel, right? What is faith? What are we doing when we pray? What is wonder, right? These are terms that are, are central to Jewish theology over generations, um, but Heschel means something particular by them. So that's, I think, sort of how I imagine the project of this class is to try to look at some of the key building blocks of his theology, the key terms, and try to understand them, and then understand how they relate to each other and build the entire project of his theology. Okay, so it's the last of these terms that I wanna start with today, um, which is wonder, which is wonder. Um, I'd like to say a blessing um, for our learning. Um, this is a blessing that's traditionally recited before you know, cracking open a, a, a book of Torah, a sefer. Um, it's a blessing that expresses our gratitude to the one and only for giving us the opportunity for commanding us giving us the chance to sanctify our lives through immersing ourselves in the study of Torah. So it's a blessing that starts like many others with those first six words, followed by Asher Kichanu Mitzvotav Tzivanu, and then it concludes with La'asok B'divrei Torah. I'll put that into the chat here. La'asok B'divrei Torah. 
which means to immerse ourselves in the words of Torah. So um, let's recite this together. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. Amen. And um, I can't begin our learning um, without also dedicating today's learning um, in honor and in memory of the um, Israelis who were killed on October 7th, one month ago. Um, perhaps you all have seen today referred to as Shloshim, the 30th day of, of mourning for, um, for those massacred on October 7th. And uh, I pray that the learning that we do together um, can be done in their honor and in their memory, and that part of our response to this moment can be to double down on our commitment to Torah and to each other and to building uh, a Judaism um, worthy of, of, uh, of what we've inherited. All right, I'm gonna share my screen. Um, and I'm sharing the attachment that I sent to you all in the email yesterday. Uh, let's see. So give me a thumbs up that you can see this. All right. Now, it's been, I'll make it bigger. There we go. Okay. Now, it's been just me talking so far, but now that comes to an end. All right. Text-based learning class can only be one voice, right? The, the more the merrier. And, uh, you know, as we begin to read and participate and I ask questions and you ask questions and you react to things, um, just, you know, in, invite you to remember that we are beautifully a class of 55. And it would be wonderful to hear from, you know, as many voices as feel comfortable sharing either by turning your microphone on and sharing or by sharing through the chat. And that some of us, you know, immediately have an idea and want to share. And some of us, right, like that fruit drop we put into our mouth that needs time to dissolve. Uh, and so, you know, some of us, you know, might want to share after, after taking in a little bit. And let's create space for both kinds of sharing. Okay. Um, all right. Do I have a volunteer uh, willing to read knowing that when you read in any of my classes, you are also consenting to being interrupted in your reading at any point, mid-sentence, whatever it might be. So I don't, I'm only seeing a couple of faces at once. So is there someone who wants to just start? I will. Florine. Okay. Beautiful. All right, go ahead, Florine. Among the many things that religious tradition holds in store for us is a legacy of wonder. All right. Let's pause right there. Let's pause right there. Um, first of all, this is from God in Search of Man. Um, and, and it's excerpted in this book, Between God and Man. Okay, so Between, between God and Man um, essentially, you know, takes direct quotes, direct quotes, excerpts from Heschel's other writings and then as I said before organizes them here and then Rothschild does a little bit of um you know selective cutting copying and pasting where he thinks things would stitch better together but the bulk of this passage is from God in Search of Man uh published in 1955. I, I think it's a surprising first sentence and what I find surprising and I want to hear if you also see this as surprising, is the language legacy of wonder. Legacy of wonder. Um, right? A, a religious tradition might leave many kinds of legacies. A legacy of fidelity to the covenant. A legacy of observance a legacy of faith, a legacy of peoplehood. But a legacy of wonder is an interesting phrase, both the prioritization of wonder and I think the insinuation by using the word legacy, that wonder can be passed down or transmitted 
from one generation to the next. So let's start with that thought. What, what do you understand legacy of wonder to mean? And how might a religious tradition hold that in store for us? Now you get to bravely turn your microphone on and share. Emily. Oh, you can also use the virtual hand. That's a really nice tool that Zoom has. If you know how to use that, use it. And then and then I'll be happy to call on you. Um, it, it makes me think, I, I should say, I've tried to study this before. And I was so glad when I read that you were going to be doing this class because I've struggled with it. But Legacy of Wonder speaks very powerfully to me of, of just making Shekhyanu all the time, right? Noticing my kids who are now 20 and 24, but they've been doing this their whole lives, make Shekhyanu with the first crocus, with the first snowfall, with the, you know, with the first of everything. And it's allowed us a bridge to that kind of wonder that I really believe is, is at the heart of it. And for me, that that has been a very powerful way of the door of the door, right? Passing it on. That's been one of my most delightful delivery mechanisms. Beautiful. So, Emily, let me just unpack what you said a little bit to make sure we're all on the same page. All right. So, Emily referenced the Shehrianu blessing, right, which is this blessing that we traditionally recite when we're doing something for the first time or for the first time in a long while. Um, and so it accompanies all sorts of both sort of big and sacred moments, but also everyday moments that get sanctified through a blessing. And the blessing itself, thanks God for um, giving us life, sustaining us and enabling us to reach this particular moment. And I think I'm so glad you brought up that blessing because it really does feel like the blessing of wonder, right? The blessing of, of recognizing um, where, where life has brought you to, right? And Heschel would say, um, the gifts that God has given you in life. Um, Wendy and then Mark. I, I love that the Shehechianu. I think yes, absolutely. It's um those moments of pausing and recognizing that something special is happening. Hmm. I think wonder has many, many parts of, of the legacy of 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 our religion. In that, when we wonder, it's is a sense of being in awe and looking at things as a wonderment, as not just being taken for granted, to be, to see the wonderfulness, to see the exciting part of each thing that happens in life, hmm. as well as wonder is to question I wonder, and I think those legacies, the legacy of not taking things for granted, of looking at the world and all of its uh, intricacies and simple, simple parts of life as being something very special, and also to not stop questioning. I'm so, I'm so glad, Wendy, you brought question the other sort of function of wonder i wonder what this means i you know that 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 um that, that that's part of what heschel's referring to um elsewhere in his writing he'll say that um wonder implies a question right? that that we are being asked something that we humans are being asked something that wonder brings us to that realization. And then the question of religion is how do you respond to that question? Right? So wonder is a, a jumping off point, both for awe and appreciation, but also for responsibility and action. Mark. 
So I'm, first of all, I want to acknowledge the privilege of studying together with all of you. And thank you for that. And I look forward to it. I reread the first sentence. Mark? For the phrase holds in store for us. One way to, to interpret that is, as I'm sure we most do, holding something, when something is held in store, it means it has potential. So potentially, a legacy of wonder is available through religious experience and religious tradition. But what if the word were changed to storage instead of store? Hmm. And it was holds in storage for us a legacy of wonder that there is to be found inside the in inside all religious traditions the potential and the lived and past experience of that tradition and what it taught people before mm -hmm. so in that very first sentence Heschel starts to play with us and push us to, to go beyond, well, someday I'm going to get it. Someday it's going to be meaningful to me. Perhaps it's possible, but what's also possible is to look behind and look at the now and discover wonder. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. I want to, I want to, orient us for a moment to what Candice wrote in the chat. If we understand wonder to be the experience or recognition that there is something greater than us as individuals, a feeling that there are phenomena that we cannot fully understand or grasp or replicate on our own, then it seems that an essential part of religious tradition is to orient the individual to see their place within the world, but perhaps not necessarily at its center. I the the I the question of what lies at the center, I think, is a key question for Heschel, to which he has an answer. Right? God is at the center for Heschel. Right? God is the hub, and we are the spokes. That's crucial for Heschel. Right. And um he writes elsewhere, I think the greatest beauty grows at the greatest distance from the ego right so heschel is very um concerned with how we transcend our preoccupation with self and recognize the ultimate <laughs> reality to which we belong and this is a little bit getting ahead of ourselves but i think that wonder is one of the key you know, items in storage, Mark, right, that is going to reorient our, our sense of relationship with ourselves, with God, with the world, with the people who we are, you know, fellow spokes on the wheel. Um, Leah, and then we'll move on to the second sentence. <laughs> I think this is also about, he's talking about He's introducing himself as the inheritor of a uh, Hasidic dynasty, which was then, uh, I think, basically destroyed. That goes back to, is it called Mezebush? The Baal Shem Tov. And these people are, um, are wonder, they were wonder workers. And uh, hmm. the Baal Shem Tov was a particularly, I'll say good one, because he was Tov. And uh, these, it, it, isn't it like a whole storehouse of stories that don't follow science? They don't follow rationality. Um, my grandmother was a, a big, uh, she, she had no problem with a lot of the stuff that I would say, oh, grandma, that's impossible. But she... So wonder lasted into certainly her lifetime. Nice, Leah. And, and um, yes, so we're going to see throughout, right, the influence of Hasidic thought and also the Hasidic 
the Hasidic world with its cultural norms and its definitions of, of reality permeate Heschel's writings. I will say here, I don't think Heschel is um, thinking of wonder in the sense of, you know, performing miracles or, a, 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 you know, a wonder worker, anything like that. Um, we'll see a little bit later here. I mean, he's really talking about wonder as a as a mode of thinking or a mode of experiencing more than a, a discernible um, action, right? That you you could see someone take. Okay. Jen, is it okay to keep going or does this, yeah. Okay, all right. So um, I see there were a couple of questions. Um, I'm sorry, folks, I, I, the, about who didn't who didn't get the source sheet. I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen though. So hopefully you're using technology that allows you to to see the source sheet as as I'm sharing it, and maybe also see each other because that's a much nicer way to learn seeing each other. All right, Florine. Okay. And I ask you to go back into sen sentence number yeah, two. Sure. The surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God and the importance of worship is to take things for granted. Indifference to the sublime wonder of living is the root of sin. Okay. Well, now he has introduced a bunch of big terms and concepts here um, that we're not gonna root down into right now and try to unpack but just to name them here for a moment. Um, wonder seems to be connected to, in one direction, understanding the meaning of God and the importance of worship. Wonder seems to be in, in an inverse relationship with taking things for granted and a risk of ignoring wonder or indifference to wonder, the wonder of living, right, is the foundation for sin. All right, just in a sense, restating some of what he's said here. Um, and I, over the course of this essay, I think he's going to unpack some of these statements. So that's why I'm, I'm tempted to let him do it in his own words rather than us as a group trying to do it right now. Um, so, Florine, can I ask you to continue reading? And then at some point, I'll, I'll, I'll tap you out and I'll let another reader come forward. Okay, sure. Could, uh, modern man fell into the trap of believing that everything can be explained, that reality is a simple affair, which has only to be organized in order to be mastered. Okay, I'm going to jump in just for a moment to say that as an, I should have said this before I asked Florine to read, much of what's going to come in the next few paragraphs um, are is going to be Heschel's answer for what prevents us from living this way. What gets in the way of our ability to live with wonder, to be attuned to the wonder of life and God and and the world around us, right? So answer number one is what Florine just read. The trap of believing that everything can be explained, that reality is a simple affair which only has to be organized in order to be mastered, right? Keep keep reading, Florine. I promise I won't now interrupt you for, until the end okay. of the paragraph. All enigmas can be solved, and all wonder is nothing but the effect of novelty upon ignorance. The world, he was convinced, is its own explanation, and there's no necessity to go beyond the world in order to account for the existence of the world. This lack of wonder, this exaggeration of the claim of scientific inquiry is more characteristic of writers of popular science books and of interpreters of science to the layman than of the creative scientists themselves. Spencer and others seem to be possessed with the idea that science has got the 
even though it's pretty well ciphered down to a fine point. Could you raise it, please? I, I'm cut off at this yes, point. Yes, of course. Um, I got lost. I think. Uh, okay. While the Faradays and Newtons seem to themselves like children who have picked up a few pretty pebbles upon the ocean beach. But most of us find it difficult to recognize the greatness and wonder of things familiar to us. The facts of the case, we venture to say, are so wonderful that from first to last, no general impression of nature, reached along scientific or other lines, can be even in the direction of being true that does not sound the note of joyous appreciation and of reverent wonder. Rabbi, oh. I have a question about the third line. Yes. This paragraph. Yeah. Because I think it answers where we're going here. Okay, okay. it says, when, indifference to sublime wonder of living as a root of sin. I quickly transferred that to the sublime wonder of creation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know, but that's what it looks like he's moving toward. Uh, yes, and. Yes, and we'll see later in this essay, right, that creation and nature are, are um, objects of wonder, sources of wonder for Heschel, but not, but, but not exclusively, right? I, but, I, but I appreciate you saying that because I think many of us, when we think about the term wonder, sublime wonder, experiences of wonder that we've had, think about natural beauty and natural phenomenon. Um, okay, so I, what is one of the challenges that Heschel sees that's clearly um, you know, floating around in the 1950s, right? In his historical context, although I would say still with us here today, um, what is what is it that is potentially preventing us from living with wonder, Judith? Hello. So actually, I had a question about the second sentence. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time on the first sentence and kind of just mentioned the second sentence. And unless I missed it, my brother's in the hospital and. I've been getting texts, so I might have missed the conversation. But well, what I I, ho I hope your brother is okay. Yeah, he's much doing much better after three days on morphine. He's got pancreatitis and other right. stuff happening. But um, the second sentence where he says understanding the meaning of God, I thought that was very interesting phraseology. It wasn't uh, you know understanding that there is God, understanding that God created the world. What's the meaning of God? That's a good question. That's, that's you, know, I'm not, you know, he assumes we already know the meaning of God because he says the sentence is something about suppressing. I can't see it, it's not on the screen anymore, but it says something about you know, the, the best way to uh, suppress you know, the meaning of God. Yeah, the surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God and the importance of worship is to take things for granted. Well, I don't know how, I mean, yeah, I think taking anything for granted impedes your ability to see wonder, but the importance of worship and the meaning of God, I don't know, I just, I really find that interesting. Does he tell it? Does he tell us what the meaning of God is? That, that makes, that comes to me of like, you know, number one, we're taking for granted that there is a God, whatever that God is, but okay, we have a God. What's the meaning behind it? What is, what, why do we, why do we have a God? That's what that phrase meaning of God says to me, like that we're, right. we're taught, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not expressing myself very well. No, no, I, just... <laughs> I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. So I, it's a little bit, bit of a cop out what I'm about to say, which is that we, we will explore what Heschel means by God in a later class. We, we could have started there, but I instead wanted us to start with wonder. Um, but what I will say for now is that um, Heschel does not doubt 
for a moment the existence right. of God. Right. Special questions God's silence in the face of injustice, right? But but Heschel doesn't doubt that God exists, and it's not really one of Heschel's projects to try to convince people that God exists. Heschel posits a God and then speaks about what it's like, what it means to be in relationship with that God. I think Heschel is interested, and this is a this is a to some degree, I think a product of, you know, arriving in the United States when he did after the Shoah, seeing his Hasidic world and his home communities destroyed by the Nazis. He comes to American soil and he takes a look at non-Orthodox American Judaism here. And he sees that the notions of God that are increasingly popular are impersonal notions of God like Kaplan, Borowitz, those sorts of thinkers. And part of Heschel's project, part of his theology is to um, reclaim or reintroduce, I should say, the personal God to American Jews, right? The, the Baruch Atah, blessed are you, right? The God that we can be in relationship with, not the impersonal you know, a uh, uh, concept of God, but the God, God who man is in search of and for whom God is in search of man. So here, the meaning of God, he, I don't think he's talking about uh, proving the existence. And I don't think he's talking about a concept. He's talking about a real God that we can know and who knows us. All right. So now I want to, I want to shift us back to the to the, to the second paragraph that we read, um, to say that I think that the trap that Heschel is talking about is the, the belief that if you can explain how something works, then it's not wondrous or awe-inspiring anymore. Or that even explaining how something works, you know, removes any notion of divinity from it. And I love what Heschel says here about, you know, the, the writers of popular science book versus the, you know, what is it, Michael Faraday and, and Isaac Newton. And I would probably say this about Einstein as well, right? That these scientists who know the most about science um, are also the ones who express the greatest wonder and awe that the phenomena that they're observing exist in the first place. Right? Don't fall into the trap of believing, Heschel is saying, that if you can explain something scientifically, it's no longer wondrous. Because wondrous isn't the explanation for what something is or how it works. It's the appreciation that something is in the first place. Okay, Sarah, Aviva Lea, Elizabeth. And then if we have time, Wendy, but otherwise I'm gonna move us on. Um, yeah, I one of the things that I thought was interesting in, again, the separation between the, the science writers and the scientists themselves is sort of the implication that it, it's in the explanation that the wonder gets lost. Um, you know, as opposed to the actual work of it, which I think is interesting, given that Judaism is that day, an oral tradition and a written tradition, religion and culture, and it's well, what we're doing here is explaining, right? And there's so much, so much explaining that we are constantly doing, and uh, you know, it's interesting. And Heschel obviously himself is in the profession of, of writing explanation. Um, so I guess I, I, I'd be interested, you know, more about your, your thoughts or Heschel's thoughts in terms of, is he really arguing that this, you know, he's trying to explain something while saying sort of like, you just had to be there basically. Like you just got to feel it yourself because any explanation of awe is just going to water it down. Um, I, I I don't think he's um, allergic to 
explaining what awe is, right? But he he wants us to explain it um, not in a way that's the observable facts, but with the sense of what happened inside of us when we experienced what we're observing. And as a sort of a more general comment, I mean, let's not, I, I don't want to paint Heschel sort of in, with the wrong, with the wrong paintbrush here. I mean, Heschel is committed to Jewish practice, to Jewish observance, to Jewish learning, committed to halacha, right? And, and so, yes, he's familiar with and believes in a presentation of Judaism that's very much about, you know, and how would you specifically wash your hands when you wash your hands, right? But, but he's also saying, you know, that's not the entirety of Judaism. And we risk losing one of the greatest tools that we've inherited to connect with God and to appreciate our existence if we are only talking about observable facts or, uh, you know, the details of how to perform a particular commandment. Okay, Aviva Leah. Uh, excuse me, sorry. Um, this is a topic that's close to my heart because I am a science teacher. I am a science person. And I that is really what I can attribute the root of my um, my spirituality is that deep sense of creativity and wonder that I was able to impart to other parts of my life and, and really build uh, a sense of spiritual wonderment because the just by virtue when he talks about that the earth exists um whether you go for more of like the creation story or you like the big bang uh it, it doesn't matter because every single molecule in our bodies is also existing out in space and when i hear carl sagan say that we are all star stuff I, i'm hearing heschel in that and you know two molecules never touch ever and there is space within those molecules of your protons and neutrons and those things never touch, but we're still able to reach out and feel each other's warmth. And knowing these things only makes it more beautiful. You know, that's what I try to impart on my students because they get the, they think of it as boring of like, I just have to memorize this. Like, no, learning how the world works is amazing. So. So Aviva Leah, I want yes. I want you to read the next. Well, I'm going to have a skip a little bit, but I'm going to read you the next section because I think it builds perfectly on what you were just saying, and and I think agrees with what you were saying. So I'm going to share my screen and then show show you where to read, and then and then Jen will go to you next. Okay. All right. So let me. All right. So, um. And and I think I saw a question in the chat. So we are re we are reading. This is Heschel, Heschel's writing directly from um, um, God in Search of Man. But I it the photocopy is from Rothschild's Between God and Man. I know that's a little confusing, but that's what it is. Okay, so we're gonna skip this history of European thought because enough with European thought, and let's go to. This top paragraph. Go ahead, Aviva Lea. Wonder or radical amazement is the chief characteristic of the religious man's attitude toward history and nature. One attitude is alien to his spirit, spirit, taking things for granted regarding events as a natural course of things. To find an approximate cause of a phenomenon. Which I think he means proximate. Ah, okay. cause right the uh, like the direct that uh, a direct sequence produces the event i think that's what he means proximate not approximate okay we'll go with it uh to find a, a proximate cause of a phenomenon is no answer to his ultimate wonder he knows that there are laws that regulate the course of natural processes he is aware the of the regularity and pattern of things. However, such knowledge fails to mitigate his sense of perpetual surprise at the fact that there are facts at all. Looking at the world, he would say, 
this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay. Does that, does that feel like it connects to what you were saying, Avivalea? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, um, you know, that sense of wonderment and creativity and asking why and how, and how very much that fits into my life as being a Jewish woman, you know, asking Mm -hmm. a lot of why and how. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to point out here, right? He's not rejecting science. He's not rejecting the insights of science or the tools of science, right? Science helps explain the laws that regulate the course of natural processes, the regularity and pattern of things, but the awareness of those, the ability to explain something does not displace the wonder that one feels that such things exist in the first place, that we can even be aware of those things existing in the first place. Jen. If I understand correctly when this was written, um, I think I heard correctly, the biggest scientific advancement that he's writing like in the wake of is the bomb. And that's the thing that would most have dominated thinking about scientific advancement in the 20th century at that point, that honestly still does, in my opinion. Um, And I think he's not just talking here about like a religious prerogative in terms of like enjoying the world or being fulfilled in your soul. He's talking about like an actual existential threat to human existence. And he alludes to that later in the text when he talks about humankind perishing Um, He doesn't go all the way toward it in this text, but I really think that's kind of what he's building to. And even when he's talking about European thought, he's talking also about colonialism, about environmental destruction. He's he's talking about real concrete things here in addition to kind of more the mystical. Jen, can I actually have you read that that short paragraph? Because that's where I wanted to go next. And I think you're you're exactly right. And and I hadn't thought about the insight of... um, the, the the scientific advances right of his time brought about tremendous destruction and disregard for human life and beyond right and so um he he has some uh he has some cautionary words there as well so let me take us back in thanks for jumping around um so i think i think maybe this as civilization advances. Okay, please. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. This is like, this is highly quotable Heschel right here, right? I mean, these are the sorts of sentences that get plucked and, and put on a poster somewhere. Um, let's hear, Wendy, did you want to respond to, to this paragraph or was this about something earlier? Well, I, 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 I think it's all tied in. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I think um, you were talking about science and factuality and factuality within itself means period the end and what heschel is saying is that we are in our relationship to god and within within us and within god there is the notion of no end wonder insinuates that there is a constant yearning, there's a constant questioning, there's a constant looking outside of the box. And so I think that also is referring to science, scientists are actually in constant wonder. How does a scientist come up with hypotheses? There are things that a scientist sees, and then from that, develops questions that maybe have never been thought of before. And what Heschel is saying to us is not, don't stop that process. Don't uh, that understand that understanding 
is part of it, but understanding is like steps. There are steps of understanding. There are levels of understanding. And, um, and that happiness lies in that vast unknown. Yeah. And um, great dangers abound in the uh, forgetting of that or, or the ignoring of that or even worse. I think part of what Heschel is cautioning us, the reader, um, to here is, and, and I think this is even clarified by the next sentence. Why does he then say awareness of the divine begins with wonder? Um, because I think he is sensitive to the, to the pattern by which humans become increasingly knowledgeable and increasingly capable and increasingly destructive and believe that they are the masters of life and the masters of existence. Um, because if you replace wonder with the accrual of um, information, right, if that's what it's all about, knowing more and doing more with it, um, then you start to believe in your own infinite power. Heschel's very concerned about that, right? But if if the if the 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 goal is um, a state of thinking that reminds you of the divine, that reminds you that you're not at the center of the hub, right? Then your whole orientation to to knowledge is different. Um, Jessica, and then. Somehow it's 12.58, so I'll close us. Oh, okay. I just, in terms of the conversation of science and wonder, um, I re I've been reading about um, outer space a lot, and like the James Webb Telescope recently discovered these galaxies that were formed like right around the Big Bang that defy the physics that they were using to describe the Big Bang. So, and then also like 95% of the universe is made of something called dark matter and dark energy, which scientists don't really understand. So even the science we have actually invites a lot of wonder and questions and like isn't um, answerable all the time. So I just thought I'd, that's what I was thinking of. Right. So that that's the orientation to science, Jessica, that I think, you know, Heschel would, is steering us towards, as opposed to, I think this is what I was trying to say before, as opposed to an orientation to science that has us thinking more and more like we are masters of the tools of creation and we have become God. Now, um, I think Heschel, Heschel Heschel wants to remind us that A, just because you can explain how something works doesn't mean that you've touched the root source of that thing in the first place. And our ability to responsibly be in relationship with the world is dependent on uh, an orientation towards living that's less about mastery and more about appreciation. Um, okay, so this, my friends, concludes the first experiment in learning Heschel with 55 people over Zoom uh, oriented around a primary text that we're trying to read together in which every sentence and every word invites philosophical discussion and questions. Um, I thought we were going to uh, get through the whole essay, silly me. Um, so I will send you all an email before the next class. Um, to figure out if we're going to pick up where we left off, which I think is what we're going to do, or if we want to start somewhere else. Um, but thank you for showing up this uh, afternoon or whatever time zone it is to begin our journey together of uh, exploring the thought of Abraham Joshua Heschel. 
and uh, maybe spend some time looking at the stars tonight, if you can. That might be his experiential assignment for you all. All right. Thank you all so much for being here. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.